If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. I remember being in Bible college and having one of my professors say something very similar to that to us, his class, over and over and over again. He was the missions professor. And see, one of the things that he said was the greatest hindrance to Christian missions is the lack of Christian missionaries. There were more people that needed to hear the gospel, to be ministered to around the world, than there were people ready and willing to go. And so I I really took that to heart. And because I was young and naive, I remember thinking that that an exploration of whether or not I'm called to overseas missions would, would be a, a kind of a small thing. I didn't, really, I didn't really know what it would be like. I thought I would explore it. And so, you know, I did things small. I signed up to spend a summer in West Africa, which may sound small, but it really, really was not. And it started in Ghana, this trip, and and we went around to, at the beginning, the, in cities, in Accra, the capital of Ghana. We went around to different places to, to share the gospel, to evangelize, to, to preach and teach and, and do everything that missionaries do. And that was good, because it was kind of familiar. Yes, the culture was very different. The climate was very different. It was summer, and it was West Africa, so it was warm. I remember that we would get... We, we, we got to tour a, a chocolate, like a, a place that made chocolate, and, and it, was, it was really neat, you know, since we were, we were Americans and we were tourists, they gave us all kinds of free chocolate, and so many of us that were so foolish thought, this is great, we've got all this chocolate. We were in West Africa, there's a thing about chocolate. Doesn't always keep very well, especially when it gets up over 80 and 90 degrees with nothing like a refrigerator or even often air conditioning. But it really got strange when we went out into the villages. These villages that were not connected to a major city. These villages with people who did not speak English. These villages with people whose life experience was in every single way fundamentally different than mine. Frequently we were the first white people some of them had seen in years or ever. And it was just an odd, odd experience. And when we went out, we would do these medical clinics. We had a group of medical students that was with us. And we would do these medical clinics because the medical needs were just so, so prevalent. And I remember just being shocked to my core about the kinds of things that the medical students said that was needed. Teaching people how to cover a wound because they didn't know that, that when you started to bleed, they thought the, the blood actually healed them, so they'd, they'd keep anything away from it and let it, let it flow and flow and flow. Or they would give them, they would give them vitamins, and, and realizing they had to be careful because when they gave little packs of, of Flintstone vitamins, it was the first of anything that tasted like candy they'd ever had, so these people that were very malnourished would take the whole bag of vitamins and have them all at once, which is really, really not a good idea. 
But what got really uncomfortable for us was when we started to get sick. About half of our team got seriously sick over that time we spent just in Ghana in that first month. Several people got malaria, which is no fun. Some of us got parasites, which are also no fun. And I remember how accommodating and wonderful the African brothers and sisters that were with us on this mission were when we got sick. And when I got sick, the sickest I have ever been, I remember when everyone came in and laid hands on me and prayed, and this illness that was supposed to knock me off my feet for a week had me down for about two days. And I say it had me down for two days. I would have said I needed to be down for longer than that, but I also remember the morning when Joshua, one of the the young men from Ghana that was with us, came into my room and said, it's your turn to evangelize medical clinic this morning. You need to get up. And I said, Joshua, I'm sick. And he said, you're not sick anymore. I'm thinking, "I'm, I'm nauseous and I'm weak and I'm exhausted and it's hot. And And the utter lack of sympathy that I got from Joshua, I don't know other men that are in here if you are uh, like me when you're sick, but there's just this expectation that the world will stop and give all the sympathy you need. But I remember spending that day in what we called the powerhouse, which was this this place that we, after after people came and they got their medical treatments, they, they, they went through here on their way out of the clinic. And we told them about Jesus. Most of them for the first time, they'd never heard of him before. And I remember sitting in that room thinking, is this what life on the mission field would be like? And then I remember bringing that up that night and just kind of how frustrated I was that I'd been made to go when I still didn't feel well because that's how I was when I was sick and and being challenged by one of the people in our group that said, Clayton, did you only come because you thought it'd be easy? And it was this moment of just utter shame and realization that deep down inside, yes, we had a bus with air conditioning. We had a cook that knew how to make American food, right? We brought all these other comforts from America. I really deep down did kind of think it was going to be easy. That missions professor who I wish would have left me alone, he was actually with us for the first month of that trip, and he looked at me, and you know what he said? Clayton, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And as profound as it was in that moment when he repeated to me what I'd already heard him say from the front of his missions class, all I wanted to do was get up and shake him, but I was afraid I would lose any and all sympathy for my illness if I did. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable, and most of us, we hear that and we say, sure, I get that, I'm ready to be uncomfortable in this walk that I have with the Lord, and then we find out at some time or another that actually we've been holding on to an expectation that comfort is something we'd never be asked to surrender. We're often willing 
to make grand gestures to God regarding our faith. The big stuff is often the easy stuff. I've come forward. I've given my life to Christ. I've been baptized. I take communion. I tell people that I'm a Christian. My Facebook page even has it marked right there for the world to see. I'm willing to go on a mission trip to Africa. Just don't make me do the little things. Don't make me go when I don't feel well. Don't make me come to church when I've lost an hour of sleep. Don't you know Sunday is my only day to sleep in? We often find that we're much more comfortable doing the big and the grand things than the small ones. It's the same, I think, in love. We find that, that or at least I have found, that the, the big things are often easy. You get down on your knee and you say, will you marry me? You have the wedding. You do the big things. But, but the marriage, I've found, doesn't, doesn't get made by those big events. The important things are the small ones. Sometimes those are the hardest ones. Can you love your husband or your wife when you don't feel well or when they've done that thing, that thing that they just know? gets on your nerves. Can you still love them then? Can you follow Jesus when what he wants from you is 20 minutes of your time to speak to someone who bothers you? Can you follow Jesus when he wants you to go somewhere and do something that's just a little bit outside of your comfort zone? You might say, Jesus, I would give my life for you. Just don't make me speak in public. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Our passage today is in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19, but before we get there, it's not on the screen. I made this decision very, very last minute. I'm going I'm to give you the three verses ahead of time because they're relevant. Matthew 6, I'm going to read 16 to 18 for now. When you fast, this is Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. During this series on surrender during Lent, I've challenged you to, to consider giving something up for Lent. And I've asked several of you over time how it's going. And I've gotten some interesting, I think very good responses and some very good questions. There's a few things I want to say here. The first thing I want to remind you of is if you're, if you're giving up something for Lent or if you haven't and you think that you might start, it's not too late. You don't have to give up food. And if you're a young person, please don't give up food. Young people especially are just prone to, to struggles with how they look. And, and giving up food can be a very unhealthy thing. But also, if you're going to fast from food for some period of time, you don't have to fast from 
all food. One of the best possible things you could do, and in fact, something that allows you to fast for a much longer period of time would be to say, I'm only gonna have this many calories a day. I know someone that uses a scale and has this much food a day. Right, these ways of actually controlling your intake and being intentional, that is also a fast. If food is what you're thinking about, I want to recommend that you are intentional about how you fast from food. I also want to tell you this. If you decide that you've given up something that's just too much, it's too hard, you, you bit off more than you can chew, don't give up. Adjust your fast. Make a, make a course correction or a change. If you said, I'm not going to handle an electronic device the entire time during Lent, and you've realized that your life doesn't actually go without some of your electronic devices, it's not that you have to drop the fast. You just have to make a course correction. And that leads me to this. If, if, you, if you've given up something, someone should know. Not everyone. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Don't proclaim it. If you proclaim it and people around you are real impressed, you've gotten about all the, all the benefit you're going to get from your fast. But someone, or a few someones, for accountability should know. And if you have to make a course correction, that's okay. Just, just share with them and get feedback from them about it. And the reason, the reason that you don't want to share, you don't want to you don't want to proclaim what you've given up, is that your fast isn't about self-improvement. If you're fasting from food, your first goal should not be to lose weight. Of course, especially with a food fast, we have those mixed motives we talked about last week a lot of the times, right? You can't, who doesn't want to lose a little bit of weight? But your heart needs to not be set on, I'm going to improve myself during this time. Or I'm going to do something I can be proud of. I went a whole month without playing a game on my phone. Well, I'm not saying that. That's an example, right? And, and, and if we do that, to, to feel good about ourselves, we've gained a different kind of reward than is meant. The purpose of the fast, always, and especially during Lent, is to fix the attention of our hearts on the Lord, to fix your eyes and heart on Jesus, to get drawn in to the story of the gospel, to be reminded of the 40 days that Jesus fasted as he battled with temptation before he began his public ministry. And so I want to challenge you, if you've, if you've fasted during this time, to to, to re-begin if you need to, to make sure that your goal is to set your heart on Jesus, that you haven't bitten off more than you can chew, and that you're not fasting from something that's actually good for you. Okay, so that's the, that's the fast bit. But in this, this conversation about fasting, immediately afterwards, related to that, Jesus makes this comment. This is verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We know what it is to have our heart set on something, don't we? And we know what it is to not have our heart set on something. All of us can, can have had that experience where you come in on Sunday morning and you're just distracted and God is not the one that's on your mind and you have a, you have a hard time kind of getting into that space where you really lose yourself in worship. And we experience that in all, all parts of our lives. When we're distracted, when other things are on our mind, it's hard to give ourselves to what we want to. You're distracted in a conversation. You're preoccupied when you're supposed to be focused. Your, your heart's not where you want it to be. What Jesus is saying here is that rather than, than gaining acclaim or popularity or impressing the people around you with a fast, but also as a, as a principle of life, you want to you wanna focus your efforts. You want to build up treasure. Not, not here on earth, but in heaven. Because where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be. Have you ever wondered about why do I struggle so much to, to, to have those, those mountaintop experiences with worship? Why is it that, that sometimes in my life, going to church, reading my Bible, praying is easy? It just comes naturally, and I'm, I'm excited for my devotional times. And other times, it's really a struggle. Well, there's a lot that's going on there, but one of the issues is this idea of where is our heart set, particularly when there's so much else going on in our lives, we get distracted, and it's hard to find to, the ability to step into that space where it's just you and God, and you sense his presence. I think you know what I mean. One of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we work on that, that we get better about being able to direct and fix the attention of our heart on the Lord is about being intentional with where we put, where we build up our treasure. Are we spending our resources on the American dream? Of course, having a house isn't a bad thing. Of course, having a car isn't a bad thing. Of course, taking vacations isn't a bad thing. Of course, those aren't bad things. But there's a difference between what's my goal? Is it to be comfortable, to have everything I want for this life, this short speck of time, when you consider the entirety of your existence? Because we don't just live for a hundred years, we live forever. The time that we have here is just such a short piece of that. Are we spending all of our time trying to make that as nice and comfortable as we can be? Or do we want to give our effort towards preparing ourselves and becoming who God wants us to be as we get ready to move into that much, much, much longer period of our existence? Where we, we build our treasure up, be it here or there, that's where our heart will be fixed. Now, I'm not saying that if you're having a hard time, I'm not saying that if you're having a hard time sensing God's presence when you're doing devotions, it's because you're not working for the kingdom hard enough. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's one way that helps us focus 
our heart and be present with him. Moving on, verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is one of those times Jesus says something that's just really kind of odd. What does he mean? Well, he's not talking about your actual eyes. If, you're, if there's something wrong with your eyes, what he's talking about is how you see the world and the people around you. See, if your eyes are working the way they're supposed to, then when you look at a person, you're going to not see someone that you're in competition with or an enemy or an opponent of any kind. What you're going to do is you're going to see a child of God. And instead of seeing someone who drives you crazy or bothers you or someone that you're excited to spend time with, of course that might be part of it, but first and foremost you're going to see a child of God with hurts and struggles, and needs, and strengths, and gifts. You're going to see the troubles that you go through, not as in, this is an unfair thing I have to go through. The whole world is conspiring against me, and it's not fair. You'll see, this is an opportunity in the midst of hardship for me to grab hold of and draw close to God. You see, the thing that your eyes see will tell you where your heart is. And if your heart is on kind of getting ahead, then you'll probably see people as potential obstacles or potential allies. If your heart is on being popular, then you'll probably see people who can help you become popular or that aren't important for you to be close to because they can't help you be popular. If your goal is comfort, you'll see people through the lens of, well, this person will help me feel comfortable and this person won't help me feel comfortable, but if your eyes, if your heart is set on Jesus, then what will start to happen is when you, when you look at people, you'll see them through his eyes. Maybe this person is this way because of something they're going through or have gone through. You see the shift that happens. Where our heart is will depend, will determine how we use our eyes. Verse 24. No one can serve two matters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the West, but I think I think it's true particularly in this country, we really have a problem with money. And one of the ways we can know we have a problem with money is how uncomfortable we get every time we read anything Jesus has to say about money. It's hard. And in fact, we will work hard to get Jesus to not be saying the thing we don't want him to say, right? Well, this is symbolic, or he doesn't really mean that, because Jesus says things all the time he doesn't really mean. That's a joke. That's not true. Money's hard because we're taught 
with so much of our environment, so much of our culture, is, it tells us that, that money is the most important thing for you to have. With it, you can be sure of good health. You can, you can be sure of comfort. You can get everything that you want. Your whole life has to be about earning money so that you can buy the things that you need. And that's not untrue. You do need to earn money to buy the things that you need. The problem comes when the priority for us. The new job opening comes up and, and it's going to be more money. And we don't stop to ask the question, does God want me to stay put? Is he using me here? Or do I, do I step into the promotion? We don't ask the question before we make the big purchase, is there something else God's calling us to spend our money on? And it's a heart being fixed on the wrong thing issue. Another thing that can happen, and this is not, I'm not saying that this is this church. I don't want you to hear that because my experience is the exact opposite. This is an incredibly, incredibly generous church. But if our hearts are too attached to money, we're going to have a hard time giving. And if our hearts are too attached to the, the entertainment and our free time, we'll have a hard time giving away our time. That's the way it goes. But with money, I think it's something our culture struggles with a lot. We get uncomfortable when we're presented with needs sometimes. If you're someone that, it hurts a lot to tie. If you're someone that you're presented with a need and and your, your first instinct is to recoil or pull away because you don't want to be put in a position where you might have to give up some of the, the money that you hold on to so tightly, I want to encourage you to hear Jesus. To realize that your heart is set in a place that will forever keep you discovering what you're really here for, for you fitting into the niche that Jesus has made for you. Your heart's set in the wrong place. And if you, can, if you can set, fix your heart on Jesus, if you can be willing to step out of what makes you comfortable, if you can give sacrificially just, just enough that it hurts a little bit, you'll find that the way you look at things, the way you spend your money will change, your priorities will change, and giving will get easier and easier over time. It's interesting, when we struggle with giving, and I think at some point all of us do, and if we don't, we probably have someone near and dear to us who struggles with the fact that we don't struggle with giving away things, right? I think it's interesting that we, we have this weird view of prayer where we get frustrated if we pray for a thing over and over again, and the God that we believe loves us doesn't give us what we need or what we ask for. But we can find it in ourselves to walk past someone who's asking for help and not realize that we're saying no to the exact same kind of thing that we get frustrated with God saying no to us about. If we want to be representatives of the Lord, if we want to be his sons and his daughters, if we want to be the light of the world, then we need to be willing to meet needs 
to give of time, to give of money when it's asked. Now, if you can't, you can't. I don't want you to hear that you're, if, you're, if you're struggling with bankruptcy and you don't, have, you don't have a dollar, that you've got to find a way to give away five dollars. That's not, that's not what I mean. But when you can, and the opportunity presents itself, Jesus seems to suggest over and over and over again that you should give. That if our hearts are set on him, helping those around us will be so much more important to us than money. But giving isn't just with money. I mentioned it briefly about time. Time is so so very hard. In fact, a lot of times we'd be willing to pay someone just so that we didn't have to give away our time. Every year when the relief sale comes around, it's something that I hear. If we all just threw in $50, then we'd raise as much money as the relief sale raises, and we could all save ourselves this huge amount of work we put ourselves through every year. Giving away our time is hard. But there's times, like the relief sale, that we have an opportunity to really, truly be the hands and feet of Jesus. You know, a lot of the times people will ask, like, what's a way that I can get involved with something that really matters, that's really beneficial, that really helps? And I, I want to tell you, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to address this from the front I think we've got about 20 more volunteer spots that are needed. This is not a guilt trip, although it could sound like that. I know for a lot of us, we're just not able to go because we have other, other, other things that are going on or other commitments, and, and of course, that's okay. But if you can, if you can give of your time, I want to challenge you to really ask, to go to the Lord and say, is this... Is this something you want me to do? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, I bet they can't use me anywhere. And I bet you're wrong. I bet there's a job that's perfect for you. But I know that either Keith or Alan Schrock would love to talk to you about it if you'd be willing to give a little bit of your time next Saturday to the relief sale, to making that a practice, to, to, to serving kingdom work and fixing our heart being the hands and feet of Jesus. Going on a little bit, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? Okay. So everyone's favorite thing is to learn about Greek, right? I know, I know that's the case. So I want to teach you about worry. I tried to figure out a way to do it without telling you about the Greek because I know some eyes will glaze over and the nap will begin. But, but stick with me if you can. So the Greek word for worry is merimnao. Let's try that. Everyone say merimnao. Wow, isn't that exciting? You learned Greek. Merimnao is this idea of having a concern about something because something bad may happen. And we read this passage, and it sure does seem like Jesus is saying, Thou shalt 
not worry. And for some of us, we're not worriers. So, okay, I guess we're doing good. Some of us are. And so we feel like that means something's sin. There's a sin happening just because we worry, just because we're anxious. I want to tell you that's not what Jesus is saying at all. This word, merimnao, the Bible translators have a funny way of doing things. They take the same word, the word that means worry, and when, it's, when they think it's supposed to be bad, they use the word worry. And when they think it's supposed to be good, they use the word concern. So you might never know that the Apostle Paul tells you repeatedly that worrying is a good thing. Well, wait a minute. Jesus says worrying is bad, and Paul says worrying is good. How does that work? Well, it works this way. What Jesus calls us to not worry about are the things that make us comfortable. What Paul tells us to worry about are the things that matter to the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Paul tells us that God, that God actually puts a church together with different people and different gifts so that everybody gets worried about. So that everybody gets worried about. And also in Philippians 2.20, Paul's talking about Timothy and he says, Timothy is wonderful. Let me tell you how wonderful he is. He worries about you all the time. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that our worries reveal where our heart is fixed. And if our heart is fixed on the things of this world, the things that make us comfortable, we'll, we'll struggle with worrying about different things than we will otherwise. Now, I'm not telling you if you struggle with anxiety, you're caught up in the midst of sin. That's not what I'm saying, what I am saying is that if you're a warrior, this practice of being intentional about fixing your heart on Jesus, you'll likely find a way for that process of worrying to transform. Worry might always be there, but a trust in the Lord will go underneath it. And the worries that grab hold of you I think he can transform those into worries about the kingdom. I want to say a lot more about that. I don't know that this is the time to do that. I really want to emphasize that if you struggle with anxiety, I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm challenging you to ask the Lord to help you fix your heart in such a way that what you worry about is not comfort, but his work. Okay. How do we do that? How do we stop worrying? There's these two verses in Colossians chapter 3 um, that I absolutely love. Colossians chapter 3 is one of those chapters in the Bible that if you've not underlined it, if you've not circled it, I really want to encourage you to do so. It is an excellent chapter in the New Testament. They're all excellent chapters, but this one in particular. The first two verses read this way. 
Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. How do we, how do we train our hearts to be fixed on Jesus? How do we train our minds to be fixed on him? How do we get away from this focus or struggle we have with being so concerned about the things that make us comfortable? Well, setting your mind looks like this. Being intentional about prayer. Because when you, when you go to the Lord in prayer, you're, you're practicing setting your mind and setting your heart on Him. It looks like fasting. And every time you want the thing you're giving up, you're reminded to step into the throne room of God and pray. It looks like giving your time or your resources to helping others. Because every time you exercise that way, you're, you're building your heart, moving it towards, fixing it on the kingdom. So how do we set our hearts and minds on things above? We, we ask the Lord to help us to surrender our need for comfort. And we step out in willingness to do the things that are hard, to do the things we may not want to do. And here's what's so incredible about that. I remember that day in Africa. And I remember the complaint I made that night and the answer I was given. And I thank God that he moved in this way because it, it was not me. I wasn't mature enough for it at the time. But the next day... Now, I didn't feel great the next day, and I went, and it was, for me, one of the most moving days of my time there. Because when I'd been challenged and called, and when I went to him and I asked for help, what I found is that he helped me to look with his eyes on every person that I encountered. That even though I was so uncomfortable, I was able to, for that day, Experience something I'd never experienced before. A real willingness to step out and do something hard and not have it be about me. Now, that's something I still struggle with. I think that's probably something that most of us do. But if we go to him in faith and trust, he'll empower and lead and encourage us to leave behind the things of this world, and to set our hearts on him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. You are wonderful, Lord. And we ask that you would help us today. That you would reveal to us those comforts we're unwilling to let go of those comforts we're afraid to turn over, that you might want us to let go of. You might want us to turn over. Lord, we want to be fixed on you. We want to be drawn more and more toward you. And Lord, we need your strength, we need your power, we need your encouragement 
to do it. And that's what we ask for, Lord, during this Lenten season, that you would fix us on Jesus. That the stories in the gospel would call to us, would move us in powerful ways. That you'd prepare our hearts for Easter. So that a few weeks, when Easter comes, we might celebrate your resurrection in a way we never have been able to before. With a joy and an excitement that we've never known. You are amazing, Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.